First Timothy chapter 1, beginning at verse 12, reading down through verse 17. That's where we're going to be this morning. First Timothy chapter 12, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 12 through 17. Those are the verses um, that come next in our, uh, our look at 1 Timothy. Charlie has given you a good introduction, and um, I've been given the task of covering these, these verses with you here today. Let us start reading together. Paul writes to Timothy, I, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he has judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent, violent opponent. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost... Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What we've just read is nothing less than the Apostle Paul's salvation experience. Not his personal testimony. Mind you, those are two different animals. Your personal testimony, if you're ever asked to share one, should be able to be given in a very quick and sustained manner of what God has been doing in your life recently. Let me warn you that any personal testimony that you're carrying around in your heart that's over two weeks old needs to be updated. Now, God has done much in your life going all the way back to your childhood. I get that. But as that great prophet of old Janet Jackson said, what has he done for you lately? Your salvation experience is quite different. You should be able to write your salvation experience down in just a few sentences. In fact, one of the exercises I do with some of my seminary students is I have them to take out a fast food restaurant napkin, like a Wendy's or McDonald's napkin, not that I eat Wendy's or McDonald's. And I tell them, Write down your salvation experience on this napkin. That's how short and sweet and to the point this should be for you. When were you saved? Where were you at? 
what was happening in your life prior to that moment. What you read here today, what we just saw together was Paul's napkin, so to speak. And so what I want to do today is not so much instructional on how to be a good father or good mother or how to be a a good church leader or good citizen. This is going to be more practical than anything, but it's going to be a little bit doctrinal if you're okay with that. It's going to be that if you're not okay. I'm just letting you know where we're headed. To get the full picture, you have to go back one verse above where we started reading. Paul lists out several sins of people that are breaking the law of God. How false teachers are really setting these people up for failure, right? He's letting you know how and why false teachers are wrong. And how to avoid them, Timothy. You need to stand up against such teaching and such people. Because they lead people astray. And you can see, again, the sins that are listed there by number. And if you go back, verse about the end of verse 10 and into verse 11, he tells Timothy to stay away from these things. Timothy, stand against whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Do you see that? In accordance to the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted couple of things here from those, those verses, those words sound doctrine, where you see the word sound, that's where you and I get our English word hygiene, clean, healthy. Timothy, stand for healthy, sound teaching in our churches. Do it right, Timothy. Get it straight, Timothy. This is what I've been entrusted with, Timothy. That word entrusted is a banking term. It's like you give money to your bank and they hold on to it as a deposit. Christ Jesus deposited this gospel, this good news into my life, Timothy. And now I'm depositing it. I'm giving it back into you. And again, Paul has been writing for several verses about the dangers of false teaching and the dangers that this, these false teachers can do to a person who doesn't know any better. He points out that, Timothy, this is a dangerous spot to be in, and then something happens. We don't know why the light bulb went off. We're not in the same room with Paul here as he's writing, but I just picture him writing these words down and then dropping his pen and pushing back from the table and catching his breath and thinking to himself, I've listed out all of these Falsehoods. I've listed out all of these sins. And now he's overwhelmed thinking, that used to be me. That was me. I was not just bad. I was the worst of the worst. I was worse than any of these guys. I hunted down believers. I put them in jail. I was okay with their stoning. I shed their blood. And now to think back to pre-Acts chapter 9, to 
to that guy named Saul and what his life was like was just overwhelming for the apostle. Let me ask you a question. This is, don't raise your hand, just think. When was the last time that God simply overwhelmed you with what he has done to you? When's the last time that you thought of what God has done to you and it brought tears to your eyes and it took your breath away? And I keep saying the word done to you for a reason. In all of the interactions that Paul had with God, of all the interactions that I've ever had with God, he was and is the first mover in that equation. So many of us, and I'm, I'm guilty, so many of us live our lives looking down that we never ever stop to really think about and meditate on what God has done to us and for us. Paul's heart has just been cracked open by God's grace. Now you and I, we love God's grace. We read books about God's grace. We certainly sing songs about God's grace. We have God's grace on our t-shirts and our bumper stickers. We think lots about God's grace. But we rarely, if ever, stop to think deeply on the God of grace. And again, what he has done to us. And this is what Paul is doing. I'm just, I can't get over what God has done to me. Right off the bat, chapter 1, verse 12, right off the bat, he admits two things readily. First, that God provides. God gives me strength. God considered me faithful. God appointed me. He called me to his service. And again, I've said this in other places, that word service does not mean butler or maid. It means enjoyment. It is a joy to serve my king and to build his kingdom. God provided me the strength. He considered me faithful. He called me to enjoy him. And the other thing that he admits is there in verse 13. There's absolutely no good reason why I should do any of that. He provides, and yet I don't know why. I do not know why God would give me strength and consider me faithful and call me to his service. And he gives reasons why God should stay away from him. I'm a former blasphemer. You see that? I used to be a blasphemer. What does that mean? Pretty simple. The word blaspheme simply means stupid speech. What that? That makes sense, doesn't it? I know, stupid's an ugly word, but it's biblical. You can use it in church. Stupid speech. Now you're thinking, I know a lot of blasphemers. They're all on TV. I know, right? Stupid speech. Paul admits, I used to do this. Every time I opened my mouth, it was wrong. 
I went to the synagogue and I met with my Jewish brothers, my Pharisee brothers. I was wrong in everything I said. It's a persecutor. I pursued, I persecuted people. To pursue others means you hunt them down. I'm going to find people that I disagree with, and I'm not just going to scroll past and let it go. Oh, no. I'm not going to unfriend them. Oh, no. I'm going to hunt them down. I'm going to put them in chains. I'm going to stone them if necessary. I'm going to rid my world of this this Jesus man. I was insolent. I was an opponent. Your version may say I was violent. And that's what insolent means. It means that I enjoyed damaging other people. Not only did I say really wrong things and hunt people down, but I enjoyed putting them in prison. I enjoyed hurting them. It brought me pleasure because I thought I was bringing God glory. I'm not sure why God gave me mercy, Paul would say. I have no idea why it happened to me, but we can see from the writing that Paul was a satisfied customer in what had happened to him. Have you ever noticed that whether he is in prison, whether he is spending time with friends, whether he is making a tent, whether he is in a shipwreck, Paul never ever seemed to get over the God of good grace. I'm sure he had his bad days. I'm sure he had his moments. But he never got over what God had done to him. The high point of that feeling is spelled out in verse 14. He says, The grace of our Lord overflowed abundantly for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. I don't know why. He's already mentioned deposited. Now he's mentioning this word overflowed abundantly. This is another accounting, banking term. For whatever reason, Paul liked math. I don't know why. But this term simply means it's beyond counting. Abundantly. Overflowing. Paul would stand right here with us today and say, if you want to understand the grace of God, take a bucket to any beach on planet earth, sit in that sand and start counting every grain of sand you can pick up. If you can count that sand from all over planet earth, then you'll understand God's grace. It is incountable. It is immeasurable. That thought builds to a crescendo that if, again, if Paul was standing here, I know he would agree that it needs to be screamed so loud that every ear on earth should hear it. It's in verse 15. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of everybody to accept it. That Christ Jesus came into the world to make you rich and prosperous. Is that what your life says? Is that what your, your word says? No. Let's read it again. That Christ Jesus came into the world to make your life comfortable. He came into the world to take off your mask 
What does your version say? It's pretty simple. It says the same thing as mine. Why did Jesus show up? I came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to save sinners. Period. Scream it from every housetop you can find. He did not come to heal diseases, although he does. He did not come to make you happy, although he can. He did not come to make you prosperous. He came to save your soul, period, end of discussion. That is why Jesus came. Now, Paul, again, readily admits something here. I'm the worst one of them. I'm the worst sinner you can find. Jesus came to fix folks that were broken. And Paul says, I was the number one seed in that whole bracket. What does the worst of the worst deserve? Humanly speaking, we get it. We understand. The worst of the worst deserves punishment, right? Not with Jesus. Paul says, the worst of the worst, of which I was, I got something I did not deserve. He mentions it by name in the latter part of verse 13 and then repeats it again in verse 16. We just sang about it. I'm the worst there is. I deserve the worst punishment that could be meted out. And yet... Two times he says, I received mercy. I received something I did not deserve. Mercy. You've seen this played out in movies. You've probably read about it in school. But in ancient Roman times, the emperor would go to the games there at the Colosseums that were spread out all over the Roman Empire. Slaves. Worthless slaves, mainly political prisoners or conquered army soldiers, were brought into the arena to battle it out like gladiators to the death, right? And the last two combatants would get to the point of one dying and they would turn to the emperor where he would met out and give out judgment. Thumbs up or thumbs down? Thumbs up meant mercy. Do not kill him. Let him go. That's the image that Paul is using here. I was worthless. I brought nothing to the table. There was nothing in me or about me. I was not good looking, not very intelligent, not a very good writer. My kids were kind of so-and-so. Nothing special about me, and yet I received mercy for no good reason. He did this for a good reason, Paul says. Jesus has these reasons, and here's the perfect reason of why he would do this. Why is it such a big deal for Paul to receive mercy? He goes on in these verses to say that he became exhibit A in what Jesus' perfect patience looks like. You see that? He gave me mercy to show off his perfect patience. To a lost and dying world. Again, what's the big deal in showing off perfect patience? Think, people. Think. You ever met somebody that has no patience whatsoever? You ever married to somebody that has no patience? You can admit it. You're in church. 
You ever given birth to somebody that has no patience? Uh, that's easy, even easier. Again, at the heart of the word patience is someone who is longing and just waiting for the opportunity to enact revenge. That's what patience means, to enact revenge. Think about it. The last time you had an argument with somebody that had zero patience, what were they like? Oh, my God, you're so horrible. Just give it to me. You're messing it up. You can't do it right. They have no patience, right? Not Jesus. Not only is he patient, Paul says his patience is perfect. Perfect patience. Imagine this conversation between Jesus and Paul. Paul, I see you've messed up again. Paul, I see that you're not getting it right yet again. Paul, I see that you're still stuck in that same sin that we've talked about. You keep doing it over and over again. That patience, it never wears thin. Because of this patience and mercy and grace, because of what God had done to him, Paul wanted 100% of all attention to be on Jesus. This goes against the methodology of everything that was said about the false teachers earlier in chapter 1. These were guys that were speaking on behalf of God, yet they weren't getting it right. They were doing it falsely. They were misrepresenting Jesus. That is a dangerous spot to be in, whether you're in Timothy's day or in our day. Paul at least admits in verse 13, what I did, I did out of ignorance. I had no idea what I was doing, but now I know the truth. Now I've been set free. Now I understand mercy and grace, and I know better. Verse 17, he even wraps it up in a bow. It's much easier and much better and makes more sense to put all glory and attention on the one that is above corruption, the one that is unseen, and the one that lasts longer than any measurable time. That's Paul's salvation experience. Now we Again, Acts chapter 9 tells you the details of how he was saved, but here it overwhelms him. This is what I used to be like. And then Jesus, in his grace and mercy, changed me. This is what he did to me. Do you have such a story? I hope so. Here's where I want to be practical. That's the doctrinal side. Here's where I want to be a little bit practical. In your mind, mentally, I want you to take out a napkin. Or at least do this when you get home. Take out a napkin. I want to walk you through some steps here. Everything I'm going to tell you is in what we just read. This is the process of getting your salvation experience down. Getting it straight in order to share with someone that needs it. I want to put this scene to work for you. I want you to be able to proclaim it like Paul did to a lost world as an example of the intended effect of the true gospel. The first thing I want you to see, the first thing I want you to do is pretty simple. Just like Paul, I want you to focus on Christ and his work first. 
The first thing you do is focus on Jesus and what he's done first. That's what he says in verse 12. Again, Jesus moved first. Jesus gave me strength. Jesus called me out. Jesus saw me as faithful. Jesus did all of these things without me asking. He just did this to me. It changed me. Now, answer this question on your napkin. What has Jesus done to you and for you in the last 24 to 36 hours? I've not been with you. I don't, I don't know what he's done. What has he done for you lately? That's worth sharing. When you put all attention and focus on Christ, it's called having a high Christology. That's a big $10 word. You think much of Jesus. You put all the attention on Jesus. That's what Paul is doing. Let me tell you what he did first. Secondly, Focus on yourself and what you have done. What have you been up to? Again, in verse 13, the first part of verse 13. Here's what I used to be. I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. What have you done sinfully in the last 24 to 36 hours? Do not make me ask your wife or kids. What have you done in the last day and a half? That was sinful. See how you keep things up to date? I'm not asking you what you did when you were in your teen years. I'm not asking you what you did when you were nine or how you spent your college life. I'm asking you what you did yesterday to offend the Holy God. Be honest. When you take your sin serious, it's called having a high view of hermatology. The study of sin, the the doctrine of sin. Again, another $10 word. Thirdly, on that napkin, not only focusing on Christ and focusing on what you've done, next, focus on what has changed you. What happened to you? Again, the last part of of verse 13 and, and the first part of verse 16, spell it out. For no reason whatsoever, the unsalvageable receives a thumbs up. You received mercy. You received something that you did not deserve, which is the twin brother to grace. That's not getting something that you really, really do deserve. That's what makes grace and mercy immeasurable and amazing This is what caused Paul to push back from the table and catch his breath. It overwhelmed him because he understood this is what I used to be like. This is what Saul used to represent. And now look at me. And it's nothing that I've done. It's everything that Jesus has done. Rightly understanding how you are saved is to have a high view, a right view of soteriology. How were you saved? I had a professor years ago that said, if you need to explain your soteriology, your salvation experience, and if you ever use the first person pronoun, you're getting it wrong. You 
did nothing. He did everything. Lastly, on your napkin, focus on Christ. Focus on yourself and your sin. Focus on what changed you. And certainly, do not leave this all. Focus on next steps. What comes next? Not here in these verses, but up in chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. Paul writes to Timothy, I left you there where I left you, and I urged you, I prodded you to charge others to get the story straight, to stay away from what is false. This urging, this prodding, it goes for us as well. Where is the gospel taking you? In the next 24 to 36 hours, answer that question and you answer the question of missiology. Where is the gospel taking you in the next day, the next two days? I'm not going on a mission trip. You going to school tomorrow? Is there anybody in your school that needs Christ? You going to work? You work with anybody that needs Christ? You going home this afternoon? Is there anybody in your family that needs Christ? We're talking about a mission trip that you don't need a stamp in your passport to be successful to count it. Where is the gospel taking you in the next 24 to 36 hours? If you leave this room, you're going to find people that need to be in church. Clay, I don't know what to say to them. Yes, you do. I just told you. You focus on Christ. You focus on you and what you used to be like. And then you tell them what changed you. It's pretty simple. It fits on a napkin. One of my favorite Scottish preachers, and I have lots of favorite Scottish preachers. One of my favorite contemporary Scottish preachers is a man named Ian Hamilton. He rightly observes these verses when he says, Paul had a confidence that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Confidence. The power of God unto salvation. He said, Paul did not feel the need to dress up the gospel. He did not feel the need to make the gospel more palatable to human taste. Paul just needed to declare it. He just felt the need to declare the gospel. Let me close in asking you this question. Of everything that you've just been seen or shown from the scriptures, of everything you've just seen on the slides, what are you going to do with this information? What are you going to do with this? Now, you could get up and leave it sitting here in this pew and come back next Sunday and it not make any lick of a difference in your life. You could leave it here, ignore it, and not build the kingdom of anybody but your own. But your napkin, if you've listened, your napkin, so to speak, is now full. You now have plenty of information to share. Timothy's napkin was full. Paul's napkin was full. In fact, at the end of 1 Timothy, don't turn here, but at the end of 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20, Paul even says, look, 
Everything that I've been entrusted, everything that I've showed you, I'm now entrusting to you. I'm making this deposit into your soul so that you can carry it and go forth. The gospel was clear and it had been invested into this young man, Timothy, not so that he can sit on it, but that he could make a yield out of it, that he could put it to good use, that he could make right thinking, right worshiping servants of King Jesus. Again, what are you going to do with information? I, I've given you some big words. Pay no attention to the big words. Big words are useless if you don't use them. So the challenge is very simple. You've got something now to share. If you can't think of any person on planet earth that needs to know what you know, come see me. My list is long. You know somebody that needs what you've got. Do not hoard it. Do not keep it. First and foremost, I pray that you are overwhelmed by it. What has Jesus done to you? That's worth sharing. Don, please come and lead us as we close out this service in thoughtful, thoughtful reflection of what Jesus wants you and expects of you to do with this information. I'm going to simply ask you to stand. I'm going to lead us in prayer. We'll have some of our staff members down front to pray with you, to encourage you, to tell you about next steps if you are interested in joining the church. We'd love to have you join in what Christ is doing right here at Hillcrest. Let me pray, and then we'll sing. Father, as, as we gather our hearts and our thoughts now around what we have, have briefly looked at today,